Welcome to Places, Everyone, a conversation about the balance of art and business. I'm Lonnie Firestone. In this episode, I want to find out what risk-taking actually means in art. Is it risky to have an all-female cast in a show or film known for its original all-male cast? Is it risky to be boldly political? Is it risky to make large portions of an audience uncomfortable? I want to focus on that last one, because it pertains to a show called Slave Play that had a sold-out run at New York Theatre Workshop, a non-profit company in downtown Manhattan. Slave Play was a challenging show, and a riveting one. Making the audience, a mostly white audience, feel uncomfortable was a natural outgrowth of its subject matter, which I'll get into in my interview. But at New York Theatre Workshop, work that challenges audiences is not inherently risky, because the theater is known for its bold and challenging plays. People often describe New York Theater Workshop using words like downtown, experimental, and risk-taking. It's the company that created the original musical Rent, as well as the musical adaptation of the film Once and the Broadway-bound Hadestown. I spoke with managing director Jeremy Blocker about how he programs and budgets productions that are thought-provoking, boundary-pushing, and occasionally deeply unsettling. Turns out, he had an entirely different idea of what risky means. That's today's episode. And speaking of risky, in the middle of our interview, Jeremy's team began set construction for a new show. Think of these sounds as a sound effect for the interview. Before I get to Jeremy, here's something interesting from the intersection of art and finance. Actors' Equity, a union representing more than 50,000 actors and stage managers, ended a strike against the Broadway League, an organization for producers. The two sides reached a deal where commercial producers with hit Broadway shows will share their profits with the actors who help the shows develop. It's a big deal for actors who so often struggle financially, and don't enjoy the revenue that producers receive from big successful shows. When a musical is in development, the actors are essential in shaping the characters and offering creative ideas. We don't always think of actors as creative because they're governed by the writer's script or the director's cues. In fact, if you look up a show or a TV series or a film, you can find the cast, and in a separate category, the creative team. What's groundbreaking about the deal between Actors' Equity and the Broadway League is the validation that actors are the creative team, too. And now, here's my interview with Jeremy Blocker. Jeremy Blocker is the managing director at New York Theatre Workshop. Previously, he was Ars Nova's first managing director, and during his tenure there was instrumental in developing the musical Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, which transferred to Broadway. He has worked for other theater companies as well, including Manhattan Theater Club, Atlantic Theater Company, and Babel Theater Project, which he co-founded. Jeremy is a graduate of Harvard and Columbia, and besides loving theater, he is a golf enthusiast. (laughs) Jeremy, it's a pleasure to have you. It's great to be here. So New York Theater Workshop produces a lot of new and bold work, and I think it has an advantage in doing so because it's what your audiences anticipate and want. So in that way, risky work is not necessarily risky. It's desired. Can you talk about what taking risks means to you? 
Yeah, I think everybody has their own definition of what makes a work risky. And I think in our current moment, sometimes we are coming to realize as a field that those definitions are um, scarily problematic. And I think the workshop's definition of risk has always been um, following the artist. Uh, and that doesn't... Uh, it doesn't mean any one thing in particular, but it means investing in the vision of the artist and believing in the vision of the artist. And that is, I think, what our audiences have come to expect. We recently, in the last couple of years, did a massive survey of our audience and got a tremendous response in order to sort of, we were not rebranding, but we were honing our brand is what we said. Um, and what we heard back was heartening, actually. It was that they value the fact that we are surprising, that we are unpredictable, um, but that what they come to expect here is high quality work from talented artists. And so, you know, <clears throat> treading new ground uh, aesthetically or um, telling a story that comes from a perspective that we haven't represented or that isn't often represented on stages across the country or, or around the city um, or, uh, you know, doing something uh, wildly different with our space. All these things are, I suppose, risky in the sense that uh, in the sense that they are not proven yet. Um, but what has been proven time and again is that when we trust the talented artists that we have created a home for here on East 4th Street, um, they come back with things that speak to audiences. And, um, you know, we like to say that we are not here um, just to entertain, that we do believe that we are entertaining, um, but that we're here to challenge people to think and that we're a workshop as much for the artists who are developing their work as we are for the audiences that are coming here um, to engage with it. So taking Slave Play, which just closed? Uh, it's closing on Sunday. Okay. Um, as an example, um, without spoiling it for it future runs at other places, Yeah. Um, it's a play that talks about interracial couples where mm -hmm. one of the races is black mm -hmm. and how the black partners in those interracial couples may derive or, or experience certain pleasure or arousal by feeling subjugated. So I think the... I don't. I don't want to go too deep into the details of the play because even that's a little more than uh, we like to give away. But what I would say is that it's not so much uh, that the what's being confronted head on in that piece, um, which is again, I think some people would deem it. It's certainly. Um, challenging. And I think some people would deem it risky, although I think we have to unpack what we mean when we say that about a work. Um, but um, what Jeremy O'Harris, who's written and spoken about this pretty eloquently, um, both in articles and, and on social media, um, is is addressing with this piece is the fact is the legacy that of slavery and the way in which it, it uh, you know, America's uh, uh, greatest and um, most horrific sin, um, the ways in which it not only has created systems of oppression uh, that, that persist to this day, but the ways in which those systems impact and affect the most intimate parts of our lives. Um, and so, you know, again, not wanting to go too deep into the plot details, I would actually frame it slightly differently, which is to say um, that these the the pairings in the, in, in the piece have lost the ability to 
um, express themselves intimately with their partners, that is um, a direct result of the power dynamics in the relationship based on race. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things about presenting uh, work, producing work um, by artists who are trying to reach for big questions and who are trying to um, challenge audiences to think about their own complicity in things like systems of oppression. Um, uh, one of the, I mean, a challenge opportunity is that we don't know exactly how people are going to respond, right? I mean, I think uh, in, in a book that I'm sure we have both read uh, by Anne Bogart, she talks about, um, a director prepares, she talks about the difference between the sort of beautiful but emotionally manipulative uh, nature of um, a lot of Hollywood and the um, opportunity presented in a piece of theater that asks questions but doesn't give easy answers and doesn't expect the same emotional reaction from every audience member. I think part of the challenge of presenting work like that uh, is that we don't know, we, we can't predict exactly what the audience response is going to be to any one piece, because what we are trying to do as an institution, what New York Theatre Workshop sets out to do is to produce work that poses questions rather than provides easy answers. I will say that over the weekend, I had a really long conversation with a friend who also saw Slave Play, not at the same time, but separately. Um, and we agreed on some things and really disagreed on other things. And in certain moments, we were like, what? That's what you got? And, um, and then at one point, she said, isn't this amazing? Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. That's exactly what we want to have happen. We definitely want folks to be leaving thinking about and talking about the play. And I think this is, in my time when I was at Atlantic, a uh, major donor there said, um, I haven't always loved what you've done. This is, I think it could be applied to New York Theater Workshop as well. Um, I haven't always loved what you've done, but I've, I've never felt like you've wasted my time. And I think that's the most important thing. Yeah. That is the imperative in terms of the thing you're talking about uh, with audiences valuing risk. I don't know that they value risk. I don't know that anyone in our audience would say, um, certainly they have said, oh, you're edgy, you're downtown, that's what we like about you. Sure, but it's a little bit like, um, you know, what we find when audiences come in and see a piece of theater that isn't quite working um, is they'll say, oh, it was too long. Right. Mm -hmm. That that that's that the critique is not of what moments did or didn't land, what right it but they they because they don't have the training or they haven't invested the time in this particular piece to really think it through, they just know that at some point they got bored. Mm -hmm. And so the response is, Oh, it, it was too long, right? And I think the same thing is is true when people talk about us being edgy or or embrace or risk taking, which I'm not saying that we're not. Those are my, the, you know, those are labels that I'm happy to wear. Um, but I, I often think that it's actually what they're valuing is surprise um, and um, new experience, uh -huh. and that they've what they've come to expect is not so much that the piece is um, quote unquote risky, but rather that it's going to take them in a direction that they didn't anticipate. So a lot of plays that. Uh, speak to me are are very uh, meaningful and or the story the story resonates or um, the writing is captivating or um, uh, all of those great things um, that that don't necessarily deal with the time and place of where we are in America. So I would I would include a lot of Annie Baker's work in that. Um, I really love her plays. Um, they've been like very widely celebrated. They don't I wouldn't say address like America today per se. 
um, in maybe hmm. very maybe very subtle ways. Yeah. Um, whereas a lot of plays at New York Theater Workshop, um, certainly the Constitution, um, slave play, very much. Do you feel like when you and James read new work or you look at new work, besides gripping you at a, on a narrative level, level, are you also looking for that other element? It's a really good question. Um, uh, I had the opportunity to speak with some of our uh, community members last night in a program we call Casebook, which is centered around one production a season. So I was sitting between our artistic director, Jim Nicola, and our literary director and dramaturg, uh, Aaron Malkin. And I can't remember precisely what the question was, but it was it was a little bit along these lines of what what is it that drives us into the work that we do? And and Aaron actually said something which I'm just going to steal outright, which is the nature of the workshop has always been um, trying to respond to the moment that our community is in. Uh-huh. Um, and that can be our artistic community, that can be our New York community, that can be our American community, that could be our international community. But to say what is happening in the world and what do we feel um, our audience needs, either to be thinking about or to be feeling or to be, um, you know, do they need a little break? Do they need, do they not need, right? You know, we did a show a couple of seasons back, uh, the object lesson, which was in some ways, a lyrical poem, uh, musing on, um, the great span of our lives. And in other ways was this delightful, magical piece of theater wonderment. Um, and that happened to we programmed that right after uh, the inauguration of our current president. Um, it was, we did not, that was maybe not what we had hoped would be the turn of events, uh, but that is what happened. And um, it just, ha- I mean, it was a beautiful piece before that moment. It had nothing to do with that moment, but it was sustaining for people. And that isn't necessarily a political statement. It's just, we do think that we are trying to respond to the world and to put out there what, um, people need. And I think a lot of theaters are starting to do that now. And mm-hmm. we're starting to see a lot more political theater because we're in a moment where political people are politically activated. And I think one of the things that has always drawn me to the workshop since long before I worked here was the fact that it seemed to do that from its outset. Yeah. I think that New York Theater Workshop has been really exemplary in creating seasons with diverse storytelling. Theater, not to mention Hollywood, took a long time to realize that more diverse storytelling is not only good in terms of more, a greater variety of interesting stories, but it's also just, quite frankly, good business. You have bigger audiences and more ticket buyers and all of that when people see themselves represented and so on. Um, besides the obvious avoidance of wanting a season to all look the same, mm-hmm. how do you go about creating diversity? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. I think going all the way back to what I said about what people think of as quote unquote risky, I think one of the real challenges, and I, I face this as a fundraiser coming up, uh, in, uh, in the New York theater scene. Um, and I hear it all the time. Um, and I think you see it in the way that some people program, which is, oh, well, this piece is the risky show. And the thing that's risky about it, right? It's like a four character drama set in a living room. And the thing that's risky about it is that those four characters are black or that those four <laughs> characters are women or that those four, <laughs> yeah. ca- right? Like there's nothing risky about it at all. Um, it just, 
doesn't adhere to whatever archetypal this is what a play should be picture that whoever is labeling it risky has in their mind um you know risky to me is when something costs a lot a lot of money (laughs) when you're investing a lot of money and you're not sure whether um people will respond at the box office right that 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 is right and so i think that we have very much um challenged and this was true before i was here at new york theater workshop um you know there's a 25 now 27 year history of gender parity on our stages um you know we have striven very long and very hard to make sure that um you know cis white men were not the only people um who were uh, getting to tell stories or determine what stories are being told um and that is a credit to not only Jim, uh, Nicole, our artistic director, but Linda Chapman, our associate artistic director, who's been here for almost 25 years now um, and has, a, has been a, a champion and, uh, a, and a force for that uh, focus and, and attention in programming our work for decades. Um, so there, so I, so you know, I think there, there is a question of, as you say, you know, it, it's it's long made good business sense. Actually, it's not it's not news, right? It's just that some people are realizing it now. But it, so there's there's that element of sort of how we define risk. I do think it's problematic when theaters are saying, "Oh, well, we need a more diverse season," mm-hmm. rather than like rather than saying who's in our community, right? And I like, think let's get a Latin playwright in here. Yeah, I do not mean to criticize the folks who are pushing for these for this change um, in the ways that we can push for the change. I think it's really important, and I think um, there are a lot of people doing really beautiful work in that. At the same time, I think the goal needs to be having a community of artists around a theater such that when you go to program a season, you couldn't possibly program a season mm-hmm. of all cis white men. Right. Right. Like you just, it just wouldn't feel right. You would just be ignoring a huge swath of the people that you've gathered around you because you think that they are important voices. Basically like you create this really wide community from the get go. And then just naturally these people are in your lives and you, you want to include them in every way, and each season is figuring out the logistics of where. And I think we've done a, a lot better of a lot better job of cultivating that community historically in the forty years of our existence. I think we've done a lot better job of cultivating that diverse community um, in our artist community than we have um, with the staff, with the board, and with our audiences. And I think a big part of why we're trying to reach beyond we do find. I mean. Speaking of the business of producing, like, yes, absolutely, we find that when we produce The House That Will Not Stand, our audience is more reflective of the diversity of the city of New York than when, um, you know, I walk into a play about four white people on the Upper West Side, right? That That is true. Um, so I'm not, I'm not setting that part aside, but what I think has been, what I think we need, what we are pushing for as an institution is um, not just representation on the stage, but how are we welcoming, um, as a historically white institution, a predominantly white institution, how are we welcoming um, the wide cultural, ethnic, racial um, diversity of the city of New York, which is very much a part of the fabric of who we are, the city of New York, um, into every part of what it is that we do? 
So on to our theme of risky means not necessarily content, but the cost of mounting something. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, I was reading that uh, Lazarus, which is a musical from a few, or play musical, play with music, um, from a few years ago um, that featured the music of David Bowie and actually, I believe, overlapped with his death. It did, yeah. yeah. Um, was maybe if not the most pricey musical or, or show, one of New York Theater Workshop's most expensive shows to mount. Is that, yeah, is that fair to say? That is fair to say, or it certainly was at the time. It was certainly at the time the biggest budget um, we had ever encountered for a production. I don't know that that is still true, but um, it... You know, one of the things that I try, uh, one of the one of the ways in which I try to guide our planning process is not to think about how expensive, or not to just think about how expensive something is, because you know there are good reasons why um, the why we talk about budget size in the not for profit world as how much we're spending. There are really good reasons for it, and amongst those reasons are the more you spend, the more. Um, or at least the way that we spend money, which is frugally, um, the, the it, it, it represents an increase in activity. It represents a, um, you know, it is the fact that Lazarus was expensive was not because we were wasting money, um, at least I don't think so, <laughs> but rather because there were a lot of moving parts to the piece, right? Mm-hmm. So it was not only, not only was it very expensive, it was incredibly complicated to mount as well. When we're planning, we think about not just what the cost is, uh, what the expense side is, but what we think we can project in revenue. And in that world, I mean, it's sort of funny to say now because uh, Hadestown was the highest grossing show New York Theatre Workshop has ever had. Wow. Um, but that was not that would have that was not my prediction going into it. I thought it would do well, but I did not think it would do that well. Um, uh, so more than Othello, which had the star casting. Yes, Hades Town seemed like a much bigger risk than Lazarus. Uh-huh. And that's not content. <laughs> that's not content at all, right? It is an analysis of what we thought um you know, David Bowie's name would draw versus what we thought Anais Mitchell's name would draw. Absolutely. Now, I'm a big fan of both of those artists and was before we produced their work. Um, but I think that I really encourage my board um, and the team at the workshop to not think about, oh, well, this is a really, you know, I, I will hear from the artistic department, oh, this is a really expensive show. That would be hard for us to do. And I, every time I respond and I say, it really depends. It really depends on the makeup. As you say, you know, a, a Sam Gold's production of Othello that didn't have, I mean, that didn't have the central incredible performances, frankly, of David Oyelowo and Daniel Craig um, would have been a fundamentally different show too. But without those guys in the leads, um, it would have been very hard to generate the resource that was necessary to just pay for that show because it was a very expensive show. So Town is going to Broadway and it doing well there is good for the theater in many, many ways. Um, but one, it reminds me of the sort of the legacy of Rent and Once, which... Um, not only reflect back on the creative vision of the theater, but also help keep it afloat. Um, how much does the success of the, those kind of Broadway shows doing well? I mean, certainly Rent had an extraordinary long run over a decade. 
um, once was, I think, quite successful. I don't know if, how much it recouped and then some, but um, but it doing well and also Town now having this new Broadway life. How how much finger crossing is there for the the financial you know flow back? <laughs> I think most of the th- finger crossing is for people to keep seeing the show and i say that both selflessly like we just love that show um and um a lot of people at new york theater workshop um put blood sweat and tears into making it happen and supporting um anais and rachel and their incredible work and the work of that company spent two years uh developing that piece before we ever mounted it and um, then worked with the commercial producers who are taking to Broadway um, uh, to help them sort of push it further along afterwards. And we love it. So I think the biggest finger crossing that's happening right now is just we want it to succeed because we think it's beautiful and people should see it. I would say the second finger crossing for that long run and for it to do what Rent did and, you know, play multiple national tours and, um, you know, have a London production and all that good stuff um, is it's helpful as to us as an institution, as an advertisement for the kind of work that we are interested in making. And that's true for audiences, right? It helps to generate, it's still the case. Um, I remember when I got this job, I kept trying to tell people I'm working in a new theater workshop, not people in the theater industry, not even necessarily people in New York, but I remember I was at a TCG conference and as you mentioned, uh, I am a golf enthusiast uh, (laughs) and I was playing golf while I was there and I was paired with these two um, lovely uh, and better golfers than I, uh, women, out in San Diego, and I was trying to explain to them what I was doing in San Diego. I was here for a national conference. I run a not-for-profit theater. Um, and these were, you know, well-educated, well-traveled people. And I, I kept trying to avoid saying that I was uh, that I was newly hired to be the managing director of the theater that had once produced Rent. I was giving every other credit <laughs> that I could, but finally when they were like, oh, we don't know it, I was like, well, you might have seen this musical, right? So... It is a it is a calling card for the institution in a way that can be life altering for the institution, not just to audiences though, also to artists. Are you gonna watch Rent on oh, we the have end a, of the month? Oh yeah, I, I am in fact gonna watch Rent live. We have a viewing party uh, that has now been sold out. Uh, we, oh yeah, I think we, I saw we're that. gathering a, with a, Daphne Rubin Vega. Uh, yes, original uh, Mimi. It is, and, and Daphne has been very wonderful to the workshop and continues to um, uh, support at every at any and every event. But. Um, is you it know, going to be in the theater? No, we're we're actually going to the Parkside Lounge on Houston Street. It felt somehow more appropriate um, and also more conducive to people enjoying each other's company. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a really... Should have been in the Life Cafe. Is that, is that still around? <laughs> no, sadly. <laughs> Hence the East Village. Um, yeah. No, but you know, it's it's an interesting... It We are... The workshop in one form or another has been around since 1979, and so... This year, 2019, is our 40th anniversary, and we are doing a series of events um, across the year, um, and it just so happened, I mean, bless the the, the gods of planning, um, that January kicks off with uh, Rent Live on Fox uh, on, on the 27th, um, and, you know, it is, it is stunning how when I sit... You know, when we sit in a, a staff meeting when our new crop of fellows has come and joined and everybody's introducing themselves, and, you know, one of our icebreakers is what brought you to the workshop. So many of them, and this isn't untrue for myself, actually, say my first exposure to the workshop and the thing that drew me here was this was the place that 
they, that made rent. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I guess to go back to your Hadestown question, my hope is that, you know, 20 years from now, um, there's a crop of young fellows who, who've come up to work at New York Theater Workshop who, who say, you know, I, I first saw Hadestown when it came to my town, or I, I, I made my parents bring me to New York, or I hitchhiked all the way across the country, whatever the thing <laughs> is, to experience this piece of theater. And that's the, that would be the dream, I think. Yeah, yeah. Actually, um, my son, who's four, we played this the soundtrack a lot from Hades Town, and he call he calls it Eighties Town, which I think is awesome. And I love it. It has a whole other musical in mind when I. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That 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 is uh, that is a musical yet to be written that I think could make you millions of dollars. <laughs> so, um, so one of the last things I want to ask you um, is about uh, a play that I think was during your time uh, called Red Speedo, mm-hmm. and. Um, by Lucas Nath, and it opens with Alex Bro, the actor who has a body like Michael Phelps, um, diving into a pool that is built into the stage mm-hmm. and swimming the length of it mm-hmm. underwater. Um, it was one of the most stunning opening scenes of a play truly I've ever seen um, because something is happen- happening physically before you. Um, it's not any kind of camera work. Um, and the play goes on to be about uh, doping and competitive swimming, but it had this graceful, beautiful first five, ten seconds that were truly so magical. And I thought, because I studied theater, so much of the evening afterward, I thought all of the months of, I'm sure, hellish construction <laughs> were for those eight seconds of beauty tell me about the process and the costs literal and figurative of making that i love that play liliana blaine cruz directed that piece and ricardo uh hernandez uh designed that set and i think one of the reasons that i hope liliana will continue to work here for her entire career um and that you know ricardo or adam rigg or um rachel hauck or any of these really really just like visionary scenic designers who have transformed our space with sometimes bold gestures, right? Rachel designed Hades Town, and that was wildly different. Um, and sometimes just small little um, ideas that are not necessarily easy to execute, but like, say, a pool. Yeah. Um, but that, you know, they came to Jim and to Linda and to Evan, our producer, who uh, Evan O'Brien um, is a, a magician in his own right, um, and said we really think the pool needs to be a character in the show, right? Huh. And that the the presence of the water and the threat of the water um, needs to be a part of what this is. And I think um, that just changed the audience's relationship to a play that was already great. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, it's, it, it, and this is a little bit going all the way back to what it is New York Theater Workshop is about. Um, and And one of the things that we do, and I don't, Again, it's not something we sit around talking about consciously, but it is something that's on our minds, which is what is the theatrical event? What is not just, and we see the director as the author of that event, right? The author is the author of the text and the director in collaboration with the company of designers and actors is the author of the event. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of credit is due to Liliano and to Ric- Liliana and Ricardo um, for realizing just what would even take that amazing play to the next level. And I, and I, um, that opening moment, I mean, in Alex's dedication to 
getting that swimmer's physique was insane. <laughs> um, and he gave such a stunning performance in that role. Um, it is, yeah. Uh, and there's another moment later where two characters are fighting. Yes. And I think Alex's head yes. gets pushed underwater and held there. Uh yeah, it, it was actually uh, Lucas, Luke, Lucas Caleb Rooney, I think, the brother whose head was held underwater. Oh, yeah. by Alex. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. So, um, and also live, live, have, live action. And they, and you know, they... And it's kind of terrifying. It's, it was, I, I freaked out the first time that I saw it and the second time and the third time because I was scared. I was genuinely scared. And um, that's something you can only do in the theater. Yeah. And that's something you can only do with a really committed team to say we're going to have this moment of violence right where the th- the pool has been a threat the entire time and a threat in many different ways but now we're going to actualize that threat and they're going to push themselves to the limits so that the audience isn't sure what's going to happen yeah and um, you're wondering all the scenes up until then is someone going to get pushed into the pool yeah and have their head held down and 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 i think you know the it was certainly the most expensive single element of the scenic design for sure was constructing that pool. It was the, it was the, the engineering of that. We were very lucky um, that we're right on slab concrete. So we didn't have to worry about the floor collapsing beneath it, but the engineering of it was still really difficult. And, um, you know, figuring out what you could and couldn't do in terms of diving in and diving out and water displacement and all of that stuff took some time as well. But I do think that, um, and, there are a lot of theaters around the city that I love dearly, some of whom have employed me in the past. Um, but I think there are very few theaters that would say to an artist, oh, you think the important thing about this play, which is you could easily stage it in the locker room. Yeah. You could easily stage it much, much more simply. You think the key to unlocking, th- to taking this to the next level is that we build um, a 50-foot-long pool or 47-foot-long pool um, in our space? I think a lot of other theaters would say you're crazy. And I think when I was talking about the risk taking before the actual risk taking, not the quote unquote risk taking, that's the kind of risk that we are very much here for taking. And that's the kind of, and that's when audience come, they're not like, Oh, that pool was so risky. That's not what they're thinking. What they're thinking is I'm my, my, my experience of this brilliant play is elevated by the brilliance that these other collaborators brought to it. Jeremy, I want you to thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. And uh, I hope you continue to take risks in the best ways. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow Places Everyone on Twitter. Podcast production and original music by Cody Crabb. Artwork by Jennifer Klockner. See you next time.